And uh, we get to start a brand new series today through the book of Proverbs. We finished up the book of Exodus. I think we were in it for 30, 31 weeks, which is pretty quick, actually, for the content of the book. Um, But today we start through Proverbs as we'll go through the summer. And so I'll talk a little bit more about that. But regarding that, each week, and I I don't want to fail to tell you this, uh, the series is called Foolproof, and the theme verse is what we'll cover today, Proverbs 1-7. Every week we're going to give you a verse and a challenge. And so every week there's going to be one verse that I'm just... I think all the leaders are asking that you would memorize, meditate on through the week. And so today it's Proverbs 1-7, which is a theme verse which we'll talk about. Um, So make a note of that. Memorize it. It would be great to study it. And and then uh, we'll take a week through, or one verse through the summer weeks and and be looking at those. So if you have a Bible, turn to Proverbs right after, uh, right in the middle, right after Psalm, rather, in the middle of the Bible, almost smack dab in the middle. So turn to Proverbs. We're in chapter 1, the first seven verses today. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7, then I'll pray for us as we dive in here. This is a, if you have a Bible, it's a heading. It says, the beginning of knowledge. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth, let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand what a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. And here's the verse. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. I'll read that one more time. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. With that, let me pray. Sometimes I ask specific prayer that you would pray. Pray that God would speak his word, but pray that he would give you true wisdom. Let's pray together and I'll pray for us all collectively. Father, we do pray that you would give us wisdom. We know your word says that if we ask, that we lack, that if we ask, you would give it to us and that we would believe in faith. I pray that you'd give us wisdom as we enter into this book this summer, that we would live wisely, that we would desire to live in your ways and not foolishly. And so, Father, during our time together, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, speak through me and that words would penetrate all of our hearts, that we would desire to be obedient, to follow Jesus, our King. And we pray these things in his wonderful name and all God's people said. So many of you know the name Stephen Hawking. He died last year, and Stephen Hawking was a former Cambridge professor. He was a physicist and some say one of the most brilliant minds. That he and his mind was just amazing in the way that he thought. He died from ALS, which is a horrible disease. But he was also an atheist, and he was also a very vocal atheist. In fact, here are some of the things, if you know about Stephen Hawking, here are some of the things that that he said, some quotes. He said this, we are just an advanced breed of monkeys on a minor planet of a very average star. He said, we are each free to believe what we want, and it's my view, this was his view, that the simplest explanation is there is no God. No one created our universe and no one directs our fate. This leads me to a profound realization that there is probably no heaven and no 
afterlife either. More recently, toward the end of his life, he said this, I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy tale story for people who are afraid of the dark. Stephen Hawking was brilliant by the world's standards and a famous man who influenced many people, many people, but he failed to grasp the most important thing. In Psalm 14.1, the existence of God. And it says in Psalm 14.1 that only a fool says there is no God. He did not build his house on the rock. He was a fool. And it's harsh to say that, but he was foolish. He believed in no God. He believed in no afterlife. He believed in no need for a man. This brilliant, wise, you would say, knowledgeable, although I wouldn't call him wise, man was a fool. And it doesn't matter what you know or how successful you are with what you know, if you don't know God, or rather are known by God and live a life that fears him, you are simply a fool. And so this summer, especially this morning, I want to guide us through Proverbs, foolproof this series. We don't want to live foolishly, and certainly I do not, and none of us here that love the Lord want you to die in that foolishness as Stephen Hawking did. The fact is, like Hawking, everyone is on this path, this journey, and everyone is going somewhere. No matter what is happening around you, you're on this journey, and you become the end of that journey, don't you? Wise or foolish, and every moment of your life takes you closer to what that end looks like. And I pray that it would be receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior to know that you have confidence to live with God in eternity. And so we enter into Proverbs, and like all things, Proverbs is a new, or rather in all things, a new book. We want to introduce it and do that rightly. And so I'm briefly just going to give you an overview when we introduce a book that we're entering into um, that, that, that kind of covers some short things as you know how to read it and what it is. So ideally, what, what is a proverb, right? Many of us think Many of us think fortune cookie, right? Like a little thing. It is not a fortune cookie at all. So don't misrepresent that, misunderstand that. Uh, it's usually, though, designed or defined as a short, clever saying that offers some sort of wisdom. So this is a book of wisdom, but it's much more than just a bunch of short sayings. You can go to Proverbs and you can find all these little short sayings, but it's much, much more than that. And I want you to know that, how it's divided up, because most of all, that really those Proverbs aren't even found until chapter 10 through 29. And all that's before that, like we're in today, is kind of an introduction that we're going to focus on primarily in chapters 1 through 9, starting with this key to all wisdom. Now Solomon is the author of Proverbs, said to be one of the wisest men, maybe the wisest man besides Jesus, whoever, King Solomon, the face of the earth. And if you remember, and if you don't, I'll tell you the story in 1 Kings 3, King Solomon actually asked God for wisdom to lead Israel well. His prayer and request in verse 9 and God's answer in 12, this is what he said in verse 9, he prayed this to God, give your servant therefore an understanding mind to govern your people that I may, be, I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this, your great people. And he gave this answer, God did in verse 12, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall rise after you. God gave him that wisdom to govern and lead well and basically said there's no one going to be wise before you or after you, other than, of course, Jesus himself, God in the flesh. So Solomon is well known 
for his wisdom. You probably remember very many Bible accounts of how he dealt wisely with the people. And he wrote thousands of Proverbs and poems collected on many knowledgeable, very knowledgeable of many subjects um, all of life. And so really, really intelligent guy. Not perfect, of course, sinful. We know he made plenty of mistakes. But we, like Solomon, had asked, can gain wisdom for life and living well. So Solomon prayed for wisdom, and I encourage you to pray that way. James 1.5, right? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to you. But let him who asks, asks in faith. That's the prayer, right? That means if you ask, make sure you're ready for what God gives you, and you ought to believe it. Sometimes we ask God questions, and we don't want to hear his answer, right? This is different. God, give me wisdom that might be correcting something, changing something in my life. When I ask, I want to believe that your word is true and the right thing. And so this book of Proverbs is just that. It can help us in our faith. We can know some things to help us, but I have to say this. Proverbs is wisdom literature. So it's different than other books in the Bible. It's different than Exodus. It would be different than the Gospel of John. It's just a different book. It's uh, really about how to live well in God's world, but it's not like the other books. It's not a law book. I have to point that out. So it's not going to say thou shalt not and thou shall, although there are um, commands in it. It's not a direct their, uh, command, but practical implications. Um, and it's not prophecy. It's not thus says the Lord. So understand it as a wisdom book. What it is is the accumulated knowledge, insight of God's people throughout the generations that give us aid to how to live a life honoring God. So why would we not want this, right? Things that would be helpful. Think about, don't think about all the dumb mistakes you've made in your life right now, right? Because you'd be here for a really long time. But think about all the dumb mistakes maybe that maybe you're even making now and who doesn't want wisdom to step correctly in the way of God's will and wanting it to be pleasing to him. I add a few more things before we dive in. This book is practical, but it's not simplistic or moralistic, all right? The Bible in that way, this isn't like how to, like, this is about something greater than that. It's not a quick fix for life problems. Sometimes you go with the fortune cookie mentality, right? Like I'm experiencing problems, I'll just follow this or prescribe to this. This is our culture is full of this. Quick fix, it's not that either. This is a gospel book, so it's good news for bad people. And finally, ultimately, this book is about Jesus Christ. Wisdom, listen to this, is not a tip for living better. It's a person. Wisdom is a person. Proverbs is all about restoring harmony through a relationship with Jesus. So wisdom is Jesus. And so if you want wisdom, get Jesus. His invitation, accept that. This book is about him. Wisdom is Jesus. I love how Ray Ortland says it as we dive in. He says, wisdom is is the grace of Christ beautifying our daily lives. Think about that. Wisdom is the grace of Christ beautifying our daily lives. It's all about a relationship with Jesus. So that by way of introduction, we're going to dive into the text in seven verses. Verse one gives us the author. Verses two through six give us the purpose of the book. And then the key that unlocks all of this is found in verse 7. So to understand this, I want to give us six points from our text. Five, what wisdom is. Six, how to get it. And all of them aimed at Jesus, remembering that we need him and we need to be fixed on Christ 
instead of walking in our own foolishness. So number one, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Wisdom is royal. Wisdom is royal. What do I mean by that? Of course, King Solomon wrote it. Of course, King Solomon was a royal. He wanted to lead well. And this son of David as written there is referring to Solomon, but also to Jesus. It's messianic in title, immediately pointing us to the true king in Jesus Christ himself. In Proverbs, you see Solomon is training his son in wisdom to establish what would come in the messianic kingdom. He wants his sons and future sons to know and fear God. And so all of this ultimately aims at Jesus, and Solomon is wanting to raise up generations of people that seek after the Lord, just like his father David. Now, king implies kingdom, and king embodies the nation and represents the nation, right? And if the king is wise, the people will be wise, right? If the king is unwise, the people will be fools. Think about world leaders in this way, right? I know that's where your head went as it did mine. So there is a need for a wise king to produce a wise nation. Now Israel needed a wise king because it was a nation, but the parallel here is that we are no longer a nation, if you will, anymore. We are the church. We are a people among nations gathered, not politically or geographically anymore, but are being built into what First Peter says is a spiritual kingdom, a royal nation, a royal priesthood. Our king is the wise and royal Messiah, Jesus. And so Proverbs is about how we can live in the kingdom rightly to honor our king. Spiritually, that's huge for us, and you need to think of Proverbs that way. It's a book of how we can live to please our king. Our king is wise. Wisdom is a person. And so if wisdom is coming from that person, we will be wise if we're led by that king. In Christ, we are royals then, living in a spiritual kingdom on fallen earth that will one day be renewed and perfected. We serve a higher king. And so you must know Christ to be in his kingdom and to truly be wise. And so if you say, well, I'm wise, I would say, do you have Jesus? Because you're not wise at all. Just like Hawking, right? To be wise, you must know Christ. To gain wisdom, you must truly know Jesus. That's the first one. Wisdom is royal. The second one is this in verse 2. Wisdom is instruction and understanding. Look what it says. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight. Wisdom is instruction and understanding. What is wisdom for most of us, if you're going to define it to somebody? You would say it means knowledge, right? That's what it says, the beginning of knowledge, that I know a lot of things. But it's not just knowledge. Stephen Hawking had knowledge of things, albeit not the right things, but I would never have called him wise. You see, the Hebrew word for wisdom means way more than knowledge. Hebrew word is chokmah. Everybody say that? No, you didn't put enough into it. Chokmah. No, you don't need to gag while you do it. Just say chokmah. All right, and invite Michael, our Hebrew scholar, back to the stage to give us Hebrew lessons. Holkmah, that, that doesn't mean knowledge. That meant practical knowledge. That meant more than just knowing things, but actually doing them. Think of it this way. It infers action. A skill or practical applied knowledge would be a better definition. So it's the difference between knowing a bunch of things and knowing the right things and actually doing them. So this is really about gaining a particular set of skills for living well in God's world. That's what true chokmah is. 
that you would be wise to do the things God wants you to do, to actually know them, and then James 1, to do them, right? We talked about that weeks ago in obedience. Specifically, that's about instruction and understanding. Or in other translations, I like this, correction or discipline. We all need that. Well, what does that sound like? It sounds like a discipleship relationship. We need correction. Think about how Jesus did this. He instructed, corrected, and disciplined his disciples. He taught them so they would know things. They followed him for three years, and he taught them so they would know things. And guess what he did then? When they messed it up, he'd knock them on the head. Remember what he said to Peter? I mean, that's the famous one. Get behind me, Satan. Like, don't, you're not doing it the way God, God, this has to happen this way. He's tempted toward, he's correcting discipline. He's always teaching. He would ask questions about the feeding of the 5,000. Do you think he not knew how that was going to happen? He was always testing their faith and seeing how they would react. He was always discerning their hearts. And see, they were eager to put themselves in that environment. That's a key. They wanted to learn and do, and they wanted to be corrected by the king. They wanted to be trained, which is why they wanted, I'm going to say this really bad word, accountability in the church. That's like a bad word in the church. They wanted it. They wanted knowledge and instruction, but many in the church don't put themselves into accountable environments. Why? Because they don't want people correcting them. They don't want instruction and understanding. They want knowledge. Come and feed me. But in terms of practical, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're all just accountability. They wanted to be in that environment. They wanted the discipline of the Lord in their lives. And, and here's a, just a tech, checkpoint. Do you have people in your life who can speak truth to you? If you don't, that's a scary place to be. Left to your own, left on your own, you'll always look more like you than Jesus. And so accountability becomes a huge thing in terms of knowledge and understanding. Jesus did it with P Peter, and he does it with us as we seek to follow him and listen to his words. You see, Jesus was smarter than anyone, including Solomon, that ever lived. He knew the intentions of the heart. He always discerned that. And, and so we need to keep that heart, the eyes of that heart, the scriptures say, locked on him. You can't just know things. You need instruction and correction on how to do them and discipline when you don't. So that's two. The third point is this in verse three. Wisdom is knowing good and evil. Look what it says there. To receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, goodness, rightness, justice, and equity. All those things. Everybody in our world always wants to know what is right. What is the most just thing? What is the most equitable thing? And wisdom is knowing good and evil. If you go all the way back to the garden, Genesis, in the book of Genesis, Genesis, God creates the heavens and the earth, and then he creates man, he gives him instruction, right? Why did God say Adam and Eve can't eat of the tree? Because he wants to give them some arbitra arbitrary rule to break? Not at all. He wanted to teach them to depend on him for deciding what was good and right. Think about it. He wanted to teach them to depend on him for deciding what was good and what was right and what was not right. It's not for us. It wasn't for them to decide. And so they sought wisdom apart from his word, right? That's when they sinned. That's when they fell. 
That's when sin entered the world. They sought wisdom apart from God's word. They said, we know better what's good for us. The tree looks good. The fruit looks good. God probably doesn't know what he's talking about. That has so many implications in all of our lives. They sought wisdom apart from it and brought foolish sin into the world. You see, we live in a world that is deciding moment by moment. You just flip the television on. You just read blogs, read social media, whatever it is. We have a, live, a world that is deciding good and right on their own. And it's confusion. Some says it's good, some says it's not. Like, well, my opinion is, and opinions are elevated way higher. So if you have opinions, we all have them. Don't elevate them. They're just opinions. What is true and right is God and his word. And it's confusion out there. And Think about that in your own life. Think about examples in culture. These are just a few. I know God's word says I shouldn't be impure and have sex outside of marriage, but that's old school. I'm sure he really doesn't want me to miss out and be married to somebody that I'm incompatible with. I know God's word says I shouldn't waste my money, but I should also get to do some things that I want. I know he wants me to be generous, but you see, I don't really have a lot. I know he wants me to be relationship, in relationship with Christ first, but I'm really just lonely right now and need somebody in my life. I know it says wives should submit to husbands, but you haven't met my husband. I know it says husbands should love their wives, but you have not met my wife. We hear things from God's word and we just say, I don't, I don't know. Who's setting the rules with logic like this? You see, Jesus, as wisdom, did this well. He confronted all the time the laws of the Pharisees, right? These laws that they were trying to confuse him, which, which were Old Testament laws, but they were always trying to find a loophole with Jesus. They're tra- trying to trick him. And Jesus doesn't play games. He never did. One thing you read through the scriptures, if you go through the gospels, they're always trying to trick him and trip him up, and he never plays the game. He only encounters those that that he's going to have a discussion with, and he never takes the bait, if you will. He is perfect righteousness. He knew perfect good and did perfect good and stayed away from all evil, even when tempted. He spoke truth and offered grace. He was the one who lifted up the woman who was ruining her life, running off the edge of a cliff, right, with prostitution, and spoke that, but said, sin no more. Offered her grace, but said, sin no more. He called it what it was. He called the tax collectors to follow him, who were cheating people out of money. And he said, and he gave grace, right? But he said, follow me. I'm perfect good. I know what's good. I know what's wrong. Follow me. The word of Christ sets the rules. He knows what's good, what's right, and what is not. And so wisdom is knowing good and evil. Number four, wisdom is discretion and discernment. Verse four, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. This is a big one. Prudence to the simple, discretion to the youth. What is discretion? It's discernment, right? When you show discretion or discernment, you are being wise in how you're dealing with something. Often we say discretion is saying, not saying the wrong thing at the wrong time or showing some kind of reservation or reservedness about you. And that's discernment. I know I could say this to you or do this, but it's not going to be helpful. It's big picture minded. And what's interesting, he says, giving prudence to the simple and discretion or discernment to the youth. Why? Why is youth mentioned? This is something that young people generally don't have and they only grow up in. 
Young people generally don't have discretion and discernment. It's only by experience, right? And when somebody matures, how do we usually mature? We learn the hard way, right? We make a bunch of mistakes. And so if you meet somebody that is wise and discerning, I'm guaranteeing that they've made a bunch of mistakes through their life to get to that point. And so he says, here's what you use to learn discretion and discernment, which means you need people around you are, and that are going to point you in the right way, and you're going to have to learn from a bunch of silly, foolish mistakes. Jesus had great discernment in moments to know what to say, when to say it, what not to say, when not to say it. He led in that way of humility. Listen to these three words, humility, patience, and quietness. That's how Jesus led in humility, patience, and quietness. Think about our culture of social media response age. What do we do? Because we can, what do we do with emails? We fire back. What do we do with posts? We fire back. Many of us don't have discretion to discernment because it's just immediate. It's not patient or humble or quiet, thoughtful, right? That's just our response and often is the case. And Jesus had great discernment in that. He wasn't going to get in a shouting match with a fool, right? What does this, what does this say there? Like, don't get in an argument with a fool because from a distance people can't tell which one's the fool? And he didn't do that stuff. He spoke when he needed to speak and he shared truth when he needed to share truth and all of his words counted and he knew what was the right use of his time and nothing Jesus did was wasted. Do you have discernment and discretion like that? Knowing what is wise from moment to moment and you say, wow, I would really love that. That sounds prudent. That sounds chokmah to me. How could I get that? by staying daily in God's word. And one other thing, by praying moment to moment, being led by the Spirit in that way. When somebody talks to you, when you get angry, slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to anger, right? That's the Spirit needing to guide us. God, what do I do here? God, what do I do here? What do I say here? When we're encountered, our immediate reaction is just to like elevate the flesh and like go for it, right? Instead of maturing, it says, whoa, God, what do I do here? What do I say here? And when it's like mama always said, right? When you don't have anything nice to say. Yes. Don't do it. That's a spiritual discipline of hearing the word of Christ, dwelling in you richly, praying moment by moment, making wise decisions. So wisdom is discretion and discernment. Number five, wisdom is humble guidance. Look at this. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb and saying the words of the wise and their riddles. Look at this. What's interesting about this verse. Let the wise hear and increase earning. The one who understands obtain guidance. Solomon is saying that increased learning and lifelong, key, lifelong learning is the key. But isn't he speaking to the wise? Did you catch that? Let the wise hear this and increase another one who understands. Aren't we usually talking to the dumb and the one who don't understand? And Solomon is saying, let the wise hear and let the one who understands. Why does he say this? He's saying something very profound. True wisdom would be that mature people, listen to this, that already mature people would know they still need guidance. He's saying true wisdom would be you knowing that you're mature. I still need correction. In the church, we elevate mature people all the time, right? Those mature people know that they need the grace of God more than anyone else in their life. They know they need instructions still. 
They know they need people around them. They know they need ultimate humility to do that. And it doesn't matter how long you follow Jesus and how wise you think you are, you can always gain more and always need to be transformed by him. I remember a story of a couple coming into a church, and I, I, don't, I won't say their name to protect their anonymity. Um, but I remember I was blown away. They came in, and mature believers, they kind of wielded that. And this was when we were uh, setting up at the high school. And we always encouraged new people to help set up and tear down. For a couple, we even helped shape. Church is not a building. It's the temple. We are the temple. We could gather anywhere, right? And the other thing is we wanted to meet people. And I remember this couple said to me, I said, hey, you want to get in our setup team? And they said, we don't do setup. We're like above that. I'm not even joking. I said, it was awkward for mostly them, but because I, you know me, right? Because I had moment by moment prayer. Um, and, uh, and I said, oh, you're above that, huh? Like serving in humility, you're above that? But it was like, really? Mature people? I mean, when you look to Christ entering in before he goes to the cross, and there is the foot washing basin that all his disciples pass by. And he gets, to, you're above that? Maturity is true humility. Wisdom is true humility, and that's what it requires to serve. I understood maybe they're, what they weren't saying. See, I'm also discerning. Maybe, this is when I had to go home and ask my wife, what were they saying about that? Maybe they were saying their spiritual gifts were different. That's what she would hear because she's wise and discerning. I just was like, ha! Huh! door. But think about it. Wisdom is humility, and it aims right at who Jesus is. Philippians 2 kind of humility. Though he was equal with God, though he had equality with God, he considered himself, he humbled himself even to death on a cross. He lowered himself to our level. That's what God did in Christ. A bunch of rebel sinners, broken, he lowered himself because we couldn't save ourselves. He had to come and then, I mean, we talk about this all the time. From the moment of his birth in the manger, the humility strung throughout the entrance of our king in a manger in the most humble way, all the way to the, the worst of deaths, he humbled himself. That's humility. He was also the son in the Trinity and listened and submitted to the father in prayer, did he not? In the height of success in ministry, he would go away and he would meet with the father in quietness. He humbled himself because he wanted to be in the Father's will. I suppose Jesus could have done, although we know he couldn't because that would have been sin, his own thing, but he spent time with God. Even in the garden up until the moment of his death, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me, but I want to submit true humility. He set an example of what it was to humanly trust in God, which is the key, I said, to all wisdom in my final point. You get wisdom by trusting in the Lord. It's a faith thing. Look at verse 7, the, the verse I want you to memorize. Some of you should have it memorized already. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. It's why Stephen Hawking would have never been wise, because it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning. It's the key that unlocks the door. When you fear God, that's when you begin in knowledge and wisdom. And fools don't do that. They don't want true wisdom and instruction. And this fear is not about terror or being scared. It's about a healthy reverence and awe of God, translated worship. It's I want to worship God and I want to fear him and everything about my life should worship him. 
It's a moral mindset that realizes that I am not God and I don't get to just make up my own. This, isn't, this is totally countercultural. I don't get to make up my own definitions of what is good and evil, wrong or right. Which is why you should always stop in a debate when somebody says, well, what do you think about this and healthcare and what do you think about taxes and what do you think about defense and what do you think about all this stuff? And you should go, whoa, whoa, whoa. I want to know what God says about that before I open my mouth. Because I would just be sharing opinion. I want to fear God in that moment and submit to his word. This is huge in our culture where things are being defined not by God's authoritative word anymore, but the individual. Whatever you think sounds right, it could even be pragmatic and work for you. That's the height of foolishness. So true wisdom is humility before God, humility before his word, acknowledging that his word, his will, his way are perfect. Listen, even when it's inconvenient to you, even when it's uncomfortable, even when you don't feel like it. Many in this way, like service in the church, I don't really feel like serving my brother. God says do it. I don't really feel like doing this. God says do it. I don't really feel like bearing one another's burden. God says do it. It's not, it's not matter how you feel, what you think in the moment. It's higher than that. Even when it, this is a huge one in faith, right? Even when it doesn't even make sense. Like, that's not even logical. When people do things, when missionaries get this all the time, they go into third world countries, unreached people groups, their families are voices of, why in the world would you do that? You could die there. It doesn't matter. God says, do it. Go. I love how Joni Erickson Tata says this, and many of you know her life, and if you don't, it doesn't really matter. It's still a good quote. It says, wisdom, she says this, a paraplegic knowing Life doesn't make a lot of sense at times. Wisdom is not the ability to find all the puzzle pieces and put them back together so that your life makes sense, but real wisdom is trusting God even and especially when the pieces don't fit. That's amazing and remarkable. That's wisdom. I don't need to have all of it figured out. I didn't understand why God is doing A, B, C, X, Y, Z all the time. I don't need to know all the details. I need to just trust him even when they don't fit together and they don't look like they fit together. That's true fear of God, submission to his word and will and way, even in the questions. That's why it's called faith, right? I got to have all these questions. Trust me. God, what do you trust me? Why did this trust me? Now, just because you fear the Lord and many in this room fear the Lord, and some of you, and this will sound offensive, but some of you are living foolishly. And some of us fear the Lord, but just because we fear the Lord doesn't mean We're exempt from being foolish, am I right? Somebody raised their hand silently. I know I did. That's me. We have moments of great foolishness when you take your eyes off of Christ. It's why Peter in the water, right? Again, Peter, he's just like he gets a bad rap, like he sunk, right? But Jesus was showing something there. Not that Peter was just a screw-up. He used him to build the church, right? He wanted him to say, when you take your eyes off of me, that's when bad things happen. When you take your faith and put it in someone else or in the water, that's when bad things happen. That's foolish. Lock eyes to me, the author and perfecter of our faith, right? That's what he's saying there. And we have moments of great foolishness when we do that, and we need to repent from those things and put our eyes back on God, to turn back and gain wisdom again and learn and discipline and instruction and practice it. So if you look at it this way in the summary as I close, within the first nine chapters of the book, by way of summary, is that Solomon here instructs wisdom and fear of the Lord, 
that produces virtue, integrity, and generosity leading to success and peace. On the contrary, he warns us about folly and fear that produces selfishness and pride leading to ruin and shame. One more time, first one. He instructs wisdom and fear of the Lord that produces virtue, integrity, and generosity leading to success and peace. And he also warns us about folly and fear that produces selfishness and pride. That's human fear in yourself and other things leading to ruin and shame. That's what Proverbs is about. Pointing to God to follow him, to live rightly in the world, warning you from foolish that will always lead, and it will always lead there, no matter how good it sounds, to ruin and shame if you take your eyes off of Jesus. Stephen Hawking died a fool. You don't want to die a fool. That's not how you want to die. You want to die fearing. You want people to know that your life feared God in every way. In fact, that's the only way. It's ironic in a way. That is the only way to never actually experience death. To never fear death is fearing God. Does that make sense? To never fear death is actually fearing God. That's the only way that you'll never experience that. And here's how I would think of fearing God in this way as I close. Here's ask this question. Does every decision of your life center around who God is and how he desires you to live? I'm talking about everything. Is every life decision, every thought that comes into your head, is it centered around who God is and how he desires to live? Every action, word, deed, does it say, I do that because I fear God? From moment to moment, from the moment I wake up to the moment I put my head down, I do that because I fear God. I want to be a fearer. Whether I look at my phone and get lost in distraction, whether I pray, whether I read the Bible, meditate on Scripture, whatever I eat, how I take care of my body, how I flee from certain temptations, how I speak to others, how I encounter others, every business decision, the way I raise and teach my kids, the way I play sports, if you play sports, the way I watch and what I watch on television, whatever I buy, does it all say I do that because my life spins around this in orbit? I fear God in everything. Maybe another question would be, is that what a fool would do? My life fears God in every way. Maybe the most stark example, and I'll just say this as I close, it's not a perfect litmus test. I'm certainly not like raging conviction on you here, but it's a test. The way I post on social media, some of you sit back, well, I don't do that. Well, you're exempt, I guess. Let me tell you again, some of you are completely, and I say this including myself, I'll talk to myself, some of you are completely foolish when you do this. Completely foolish when you do this. It is a bottomless pit that Satan uses in your lives as a bait to make you look like a complete fool. So be careful. And if you're nodding, it means maybe you've learned the hard way. From the selfies to the political posts to the complaints, the debates, rants, search back. In fact, get together with a friend, another brother or sister in Christ, the last year of your posts, and just ask them this question. This would be by way of a checkpoint. Did my life look like it feared God this last year? Just search back through all the posts. Some of you do not want to show up at that meeting. Just look back. Does my life fear God? And then receive the discipline. I'm not saying this as a judgment as much as a starting place to begin walking in wisdom. By God's grace, and that's the beautiful thing about God's grace, he redeems our pasts. Amen? So when you come in here, man, like, wow, he gave it to me today. I want to give you something else. I want to give you the invitation to God's grace. That's what I really care more about, is there is a redeemer and a savior for that sin. That's the point. 
We're redeemed by the grace of Christ. Wisdom is a person of my life center around who God is and how he desires for me to live. And so I ask you this. Are you trusting daily in the wisdom of Jesus? Do you know him? Are you walking with him? I love this quote from Ray Ortland. He says, wisdom is the gospel, the gospel of Christ, reshaping us for royalty as God places us on his anvil and we trust him enough to stay there until the work is done. Stephen Hawking died a fool because he didn't make the most important decision that everyone needs to make in his life. And that's a decision that if you've never made it, you can make today to fear God to start new, to acknowledge your sin, to repent from it and turn to faith in Christ knowing that is the wisest thing you could ever do, knowing that you need a savior. That is grace when you look on the cross and you see what Jesus did and he took your sin and the penalty of death and he put it on his shoulders and he went and it was buried and he rose victoriously over it for all who placed their faith in him, confessing with their mouth, believing in their heart that he is Lord. That's fear and worship. And that is the most important decision you could do ever make is to receive the gift of grace for salvation. I want to pray for you that you would trust in that salvation if you haven't already and pray for all of us that we would stay on that anvil until God is finished. Let's pray.